Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative. Today with me is Matt Burgess, our economic analyst who knows everything there is to know about carbon trading and the emissions trading scheme. This morning, the government released its consultation paper on what it plans to do to get us to net zero through 2050. And I'm kind of curious to know what they've all got in store for us. And Matt's had a look through it. I've had a very quick look at it, but Matt actually knows what's going on. So what are, what are, what are the highlights here? What should we be looking for? So this is the government's emissions reduction plan. It's a first draft. It's a consultation document. The government said that it wants to put out its final version of this document in April next year. It was pushed back uh, to next year. Um, understandably, it's a, it's a massive job. Today was a 130-page uh, document uh, chock full of ideas that have largely been lifted or taken from the Climate Change Commission's advice, which was delivered to the government in May. So the government's pretty much picked that up lock, stock and barrel. Um, the report is essentially a plan for how the government wants to cut emissions um, over the next 14 years through to 2035, the end of the third budget period puts us on track to target in 2050 of net zero emissions. The legislation says the plan has to include a multi-sector strategy, strategies for every sector of the economy, uh, including uh, it also has to have something about mitigating effects on households and businesses and so on, equity and all mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so it's a big, ambitious program. I think what we've seen today is the takeaway is there's not a lot new under the sun here. Essentially, if you'd read the Climate Change Commission's plan or advice to the government, that's pretty much what we got today in terms of the strategy. The idea is we've got an ETS that's going to keep going. In addition to that, we're going to do all of these other things as government, taxes on vehicle imports, subsidies for EVs, bans on this, uh, subsidies and caps on forestry and so on. Uh, lots of intervention in all areas of the economy, not much attention to whether any of it's actually going to cut emissions, not much attention on data, cost per tonne performance, actual effectiveness. Yeah. It's just a big, heavy plan for more well, government in our lives. One of the problems we'd had with the Commission's report when that had come out is that they had no cost effectiveness assessment anywhere in there. So they had a whole pile of proposed measures. And it was hard to tell whether these were things that the commission figured might cost like a dollar a ton per emission reduction or $10,000 per ton for an emission reduction. And the difference between those really matters because you want to, you could do 10,000 times as many things if you're doing the dollar a ton stuff. Now, we criticized the Climate Commission pretty sharply for this. And they said, well, that's not our job. That's the job of the government when it responds to this and puts up its actual recommendations. I didn't see any cost effectiveness evaluation anywhere in this document. Is that something that still might come or have they kind of given up on that? They've given up on I have not seen any reference to any sense of cost effectiveness. There's a reference to the ETS being cost effective, which is certainly true, but no principle as far as I've seen in the time, the two or three hours since it's been released, no principle that I've seen even in principle, to a commitment to um, do what works best first, nothing like that. Oh, so it's it's really just climate change is a blank, sli uh, blank slate where the government, we're going to just do things that we say cuts emissions, we're not really going to check, we're not going to prioritise the more effective things over less effective, we don't care whether um, the ETS um, and doing other things um, actually is any better or worse than just the ETS. We're going to do it anyway. That's the strategy. Okay, I'm, I'm still stuck here because... You might think that maybe in the fullness of time when they're actually putting up the regulatory measures and the legislation enabling it, there'll be a regulatory impact assessment that comes with that and gives some hints towards cost benefit figures. 
But that seems really late in the game because if they're trying to come up with an overall strategy for the whole economy and the whole country, and the later regulatory instruments end up saying that, well, no, these measures are really, really stupid, and this other measure is really cost-effective, what, do they go back to the whole setup at the start and rejig the whole set of carbon budgets, or does just nothing happen because they don't care about cost anymore? What's the lesson, I think, that we've learned under this government, or at least one of them, with respect to climate change? It's that once the political commitment's been made to a policy, the analysis after that point doesn't matter at all. So we saw the Zero Carbon Bill in 2018, after the ta- legislation was tabled, I think, or certainly after the cabinet paper and the political commitment to zero carbon had been made, then the analysis arrived from the Ministry for the Environment, which showed that we could be paying $3,000 a tonne, an absolutely astronomical amount. I mean, obviously um, implausible. We just can't afford that much money. We That's more than 100% of GDP. Those figures came out from a credible source. The Ministry for the Environment had no effect whatsoever. So when the Climate Change Commission and now the government talks about um, doing cost-benefit analysis only once the decision after the decision's been made, it's obviously disingenuous. The Commission and the government and officials know that once the political commitment's been made, it doesn't matter what the analysis shows, that policy is going to happen. Now, if your goal is to get to net zero emissions for the least cost or the highest welfare or with the most certainty, that process is terrible because it means you're locking in commitments to policies without any awareness um, of whether they're competitive or good or will actually work. Some of them are going to raise emissions. If your process, if you're doing it in a way that makes those decisions irreversible, so that when the analysis arrives showing that it's a terrible policy, it's too late, you're not try, you're not really serious about cutting emissions. So look, I think there's an overarching question here of this disconnect under this government, which calls uh, climate change a climate emergency and on the other hand, keeps proposing policies and keeps pushing a process that isn't going to get us to those targets. Now, a few minutes ago, you said that the government has to have some attention to distributional consequences. And this is something that's worried us before, that they kind of pay lip service to it, or they'll throw the word equity in and not really have any analysis of where costs might fall on different measures. And we've been proposing a carbon dividend as one way of trying to address equity implications. So the government makes a whole pile of money when it sells ETS credits. And now that the ETS price is, well, higher than 60 bucks a ton, that gives the government a great big pool of money to take, divide up 5 million ways and give everybody a check at the start of the year in advance even of the payments that they might be making on carbon to help them facilitate their own transition and deal with the equity issue because that will end up having to be a progressive transfer, right? Because rich people spend more on everything, carbon's in everything. So rich people pay a whole pile in carbon charges, the money gets split up five million ways, it's progressive, it would deal to distribution and equity. Um, I know that when we talked with government officials earlier on this, they'd say, oh, well, a stumbling block on this is the Treasury won't let us hypothecate the revenues, it's all this darn Treasury's fault, we just need some way of ring fencing the money that comes in from the ETS so that we could do this. Now, is there a carbon dividend anywhere in the document or are they taking equity kind of like seriously by putting up some analysis around it? Or is there, do we have any cause for hope in here? No, we don't. Um, carbon pricing is, you know, I think, well understood to be mildly uh, regressive. And that's because carbon makes up um, a higher share of uh, spending by low-income households than it is for higher-income households. So if you put a price on carbon, um, that's going to proportionately hit low-income households somewhat more than high-income households. 
A carbon dividend, which is what you just said, taking the revenues from the sale of emissions units and spreading it across the population evenly, just a flat payment to every household, that um, that turns a mildly regressive uh, policy in carbon pricing into a strongly progressive policy. And that's because um, under a flat distribution of those revenues, um, low-income households disproportionately benefit. So I've been looking at research um, from overseas just in the last week. Uh, one study finds something like 56% of households overall benefit overall from the combination of carbon pricing plus a dividend. Among low-income households, that percentage rises to 84% of low-income households benefit from carbon tax plus dividends. So a carbon dividend is strongly progressive. That's good because, um, well, just for its own sake, um, but also because that buys you um, political and voter support for the whole idea of pricing emissions in the first place. That's a good thing if you're trying to get to a difficult target like net zero emissions. Uh, so a carbon dividend really ticks every box you can imagine. One of the few concrete things that this, government, this document released today does is that it rules out a carbon dividend. If you look at page 35, it refers to revenue recycling, money raised from the um, sale of emissions units going to climate policies. I think the only reasonable interpretation of that statement on page 35 is that the government isn't going to give the money back to households who pay a carbon price. It's going to keep it and spend it on its pet projects. Well, at least this is just a consultation document at this point, right? Like there's some chance that if everybody submits on this, they might change their mind. But I'm feeling like I got a bit of egg on my face here now because I had thought that folks with these decision powers were actually sincere about wanting a carbon dividend. And then when we were yelling at Treasury about this to tell them to hypothecate it so that we'd be able to get a carbon dividend, Treasury was worried about that they'll just spend it on dumb shit. I really hope that people submit particularly on getting a carbon dividend. Treasury was really worried that government would wind up just wasting the money, and now it looks like they're going to wind up just wasting the money. You can't really not waste the money if you're spending that money under an emissions cap. Well, you can't cut emissions with that, by definition. Look, I've got four, one of the four take. look, I just wrote a few notes before this, four takeaways from this whole document. The fourth one is the government is not listening. This government has published a document today that is essentially exactly what we got from the Climate Change Commission in January with their draft report and in May with their final report. We still don't know how this emissions reduction plan reduces emissions. The government has capped emissions with the emissions trading scheme, which is acknowledged in today's document. The document does not go on to explain how any of the screed of policies, we are talking dozens of policies that over the next 30 years will cost hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe trillions, because 30 years is a long time. We still don't know how that plan cuts emissions. We've also got a card look. Here's the four things that need to happen to get us to net zero in 2050. It's actually super simple. One is cap emissions with the emissions trading scheme. We've got that and the cap's being pointed at net zero as it should be. That's fine. Second thing is put a price on carbon in agriculture. That's happening in 2025. Good. And then two other things for risk management. One is well-organised access to genuine offshore mitigation so that it's there if and when we need it. If carbon prices in New Zealand go crazy, that we have a safety valve, we can go offshore in a reliable, organised way. Nothing in this document about organising the accounting and the mechanics around that. Lots of machinery is required, nothing about that. And of course the fourth thing, carbon dividend, because that's what buys you voter support, political support, to price emissions even at a fairly aggressive level that gets you all the way to net zero. This, this document rules that out. So really 99% of what we've seen today from the government is either irrelevant, lots of stuff on circular economy, 
who cares? Something on quite a bit on congestion pricing, fine for its own sake, but irrelevant to getting to net zero or actually counterproductive stuff, ruling out the carbon dividend, you know, not having anything on processes to, to get organised formal access to offshore mitigation, you know, not haphazard stuff when the carbon price goes to $200 next week, which it might, you don't know. You know. Yeah. So you've just got a fundamentally irresponsible process going on here. People have been asking the government for the last year, arguably for the last decade. How do emissions policies work if you've capped emissions? We still don't have an answer to that. We have an army of officials working at our expense that's writing 100-page documents to plan every element of how we live our lives, knowing that nothing that they're proposing to do is going to cut emissions. They know that, and yet they keep rolling out these, these strategy documents that are eventually going to turn into policies that are eventually going to have us taking the kids to school on a bus will be implicitly subsidising coal imports to power um, Huntley. That's what we're talking about. Um, just one of the regulatory measures that they proposed, again, I just gave it a quick skim. You looked at it a little bit more closely, although time constraints we haven't gone through in proper depth, but we'll have a look at it more thoroughly later. I'd seen something in there that looked an awful lot like the old U.S. cash for clunkers scheme. So if we go back to that one, this was in the wake of the GFC and the U.S. government was looking for ways to throw money at dumb stuff to try and stimulate the economy. And one idea they came up with was cash for clunkers. We're going to pay people to trade in their old cars. And so long as the engine from that car gets destroyed, we're going to give them some money. So if you trade in your car, then we'll give the car dealer money for crashing the engine of it so it can never be used again. And they had this sliding scale of how much money would be paid for all these different engines that get destroyed. So the studies that I'd seen on this at the time, well, it wasn't all that great as fiscal stimulus, but let's leave that to one side because emission policy shouldn't be about that. They were also trying to figure out, well, was there any environmental benefit to this? Like, what was the cost per ton of greenhouse gas emission reductions that you get through a cash for clunker scheme where you scrap a whole pile of older, presumably higher emitting cars? And there they were figuring it in the hundreds of dollars per ton of carbon reduced in U.S. dollars 2012. So it seems unlikely that a cash for clunker scheme here is going to be better than that. Did you... <laughs> Am I missing something? So it's a it's an obviously terrible policy, but it's there because of another terrible policy, which is fee bait, right? So fee bait is putting taxes on imports of vehicles, new and used vehicles, adding thousands of dollars to those cars. Guess what the direct result of that's going to be? Our already aged car fleet, those old cars are going to stay on the road for longer because people need, that's just what they're going to do. They're going to drive their old car for longer to avoid having to fork out thousands more dollars for its replacement. So you need, um, in response to that stupid, and by the way, awfully regressive policy, you know, it's people, who are the people writing the checks to fund that policy? People who buy affordable cars, people on low incomes um, disproportionately. Who are the people receiving the $8,000 checks for their brand new Tesla Model 3? Not low income households, it's going to be wealthy people. So it's a horribly regressive policy. And now you've got to do this other stupid thing, cash for clunkers, to try and stop us turning into Cuba, which is obviously going to happen um, when you've got a policy like feedback. And by the way, none of these regressive awful policies that are going to have a real impact, especially at the bottom end, is going to cut a single tonne of emissions because transport's in the ETS cap. And I'm sorry we have to keep saying it, but my God, this is the world we're in. You know, thousands of officials working on stuff 
that won't cut a single ton of emissions. And we're just going to keep saying it because it's ludicrous. Yeah, we just keep... It, it is a little frustrating on Twitter. The no, number of times you'll get people coming back and saying, oh, well, we can't trust people to make the right choices about what car they might buy for the long term. Well, one, if the government was worried that people were really dumb and needed benign, benevolent government uh, oversight to help them make the right decisions, all they really need to do is stick a, put a sticker on the car window when it's sold saying, well, you know what? When the ETS price goes to $100, here's your annual running cost for this car. And if it goes to 150 here's the annual running cost. You go and decide what's right for you, right? Like people aren't so dumb that they can't read a sticker. But, there, but it's know, worse the, than that. The ETS still cuts emissions even if consumers are dumb. And course, that's consumers exactly, are not dumb. Yeah. You, you can measure whether consumers respond to emissions prices. It's been measured. Of course they do. Consumers are not stupid. We are talking big dollars. They do care about the cost of carbon, the cost of petrol, the cost of owning a car. Of course they take this into account. But even if they didn't, the ETS would still cut emissions now, as we've talked I got, about. I got another dumb question for you. How much has the ETS price gone up since the Climate Commission put out its report? Uh, it's doubled since July last year. I'm going to guess it was forty dollars at the start of this year, and now it's sixty-five. So it's it's up. Um, it's up fifty percent. Now 50%. we might think that a more than fifty percent increase in the price of carbon might have already had some effect on uh, people's ad- adapting. Right? They might take up new oh, tech. They without might... a doubt. Without a doubt. Is there any indication in the document that they've gone looking to see what's already happening with a fifty percent increase in the price of carbon? If they just photocopied the Climate Change Commission's final report and put a new cover on it and put that out, we'd have about the same document. Okay. This is, look, this is not about emissions. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah, this government doesn't care about cutting carbon or getting to net zero. It's paying lip service to those things, but it keeps pushing policies and processes. It doesn't care what the price of carbon is. It doesn't matter whether the ETS is doing any more. That should translate to doing less on other things because the ETS is working better and faster and sooner than we thought. No change at all in the strategy. If anything, the government's pushing even harder um, on everything that's not ETS. So uh, what are submissions due on this? Like how long have we got to go through this properly and how long do our listeners have? Well, actually, um, in contrast to other legislation that does minor things like expropriating uh, medical companies, uh, we've got till 24th of November uh, to respond to this one. So the government's given us a whole six weeks to go back to them uh, on this particular policy. If only they could do that. Um, for other, even more significant legislation that we've been talking about. Well, that's good. That'll give us some time to look through it more thoroughly and get our own reactions to it up. And hopefully some of you who share our views on these things might be able to have a look at it, see whether you agree with us or not, and use it in making your own submissions. Anything else, Matt? There are a couple of good things. Oh, okay. Let's let's give credit where it's due. Um, The ETS is talked about a lot in the document. It's quite clear that the ETS is here to stay. Um, the government recognises there's a cap. Uh, it seems to, doesn't dispute the idea that it works. Um, doesn't explain how it's, all its other uh, city stuff um, will actually help, but that's beside the point. We've already talked about that. The document recognises forestry's contribution. Uh, that is good. Uh, that's, I'd rather have been in a world where the government accepts that um, you know trees capture carbon uh, as opposed to the alternative, which is not crazy to imagine we could be in that world. There is an incoherence, though. The government talks about uh, all its... Uh, subsidies for forestry, billion trees program, and seven or eight other policies. There's a lot of money going, um, taxpayer money being gifted to forestry. At the same time, the document talks about capping uh, new forestry because the government is worried that a $65 ETS price is going to um, lead to over sequestration. <laughs> they actually use the word um, overinvestment in forestry, uh, which is hilarious if you're trying to uh, get to net zero emissions, given how good 
uh, trees are curbing emissions. And the government also talks about congestion pricing. Now, congestion pricing has nothing to do with um, getting to net zero because, of course, transport's already in the cap, um, but it's a good idea in its own right. So it is good to see uh, the government talking about congestion pricing. Not an easy topic, so um, they're a bit brave by going there and good on them for doing that. Apart from that, awful, just awful. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, anytime. Enjoy listening to us. Check the website for further episodes and do sign up for our newsletter. And keep an eye out for our submission on the uh, climate plan that's coming out in case it's helpful in setting your own later on down the track. Thank you so much.